0: Happy New Reads November, everyone! For the sixth year in a row, we take the month of November as an opportunity to pause from our usual Throwback Reads programming so that we can look at newer contributions to the world of books aimed at younger readers. New Reads November is a much-loved tradition for many SSR fans, and it gives me the chance to catch up on what's hot in YA and how far the industry has come since some of the more regressive books we talk about on the show were published. Our first New Reads November 2023 title is Friday I'm in Love by Cameron Garrett, which was published in January of this year. It's the story of 15-year-old Mahalia, who has had to abandon her dreams of a lavish sweet 16 party as a result of financial stress in her family. But that doesn't mean she has entirely given up on the idea of throwing a massive celebration. In lieu of a classic Sweet 16, she is now saving up to throw herself a coming-out party, where she hopes that she will be able to share the pride that she takes in her queerness, even with her mother, who is a pretty conservative Christian. While all of this is happening, Mahalia also has to navigate a crush on and then budding relationship with new girl Siobhan, new pressures on her bond with longtime bestie Naomi, and plenty of casual racism at school. On episode 268, my guests and I basically spend an hour talking about how much we loved Friday I'm in Love and how excited we are to continue watching Cameron Garrett's career. We talk about the book as an homage to romantic comedies and a contemporary representation of meaningful diversity and queer life for teens. We discuss the nuanced conversations around so-called coming-out stories, the ample musical references in Friday I'm in Love, the book's portrayal of race, and so much more. The audio in this conversation is a little iffy, but I'm confident that won't impact your experience with the episode. This week's guest is Elliot Schrafer. Elliot is a New York Times bestselling author, has twice been a finalist for the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, received the Stonewall Honor for LGBTQIA teen book, and received the Prince Honor for Young Adult Books from the ALA. In naming him an editor's choice, the New York Times has called his work dazzling and big-hearted. His science writing has appeared in Discover, Sierra, USA Today, Nautilus, and the Washington Post magazine. He has an MA in animal studies from NYU, is on the faculty of the Fairleigh Dickinson and Hamline MFAs for creative writing, and lives with his husband in New York City. Elliot's latest YA novel, Charming Young Man, is now available wherever books are sold, and you'll hear more about it at the end of this interview. Follow Elliot on Twitter at Elliot Schrafer and on Instagram at Schrafer. Thanks so much to Elliot for joining me to kick off New Reads November. A big thanks also goes out to all of you for listening, downloading, subscribing, sharing, recommending, supporting, all of it. As I prepare to take a brief maternity leave from the podcast in early 2024, it means that much more to know that there is this amazing community of SSR fans and listeners who feel connected to the show. You can forge an even deeper connection with all things SSR by joining our Patreon community at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast. You can become a patron for as little as $1 per month, which works out to literally 25 cents an episode, and you will get tons of cool exclusive rewards in return. Most patrons join at the $5 per month level, which gets you membership into the SWR, that's Shit We Read, book club, the book club, and most other Patreon activity, We'll keep going strong, even while the podcast is on hiatus. Again, you can learn more at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. I post updates about Patreon, my personal reading, podcast behind the scenes, and my dog on social media. So stay in the know there. SSR is on Instagram and Twitter at ssrpod, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. With the holidays suddenly on the horizon, I have the perfect gift recommendation for all of the bookworms on your list. A present from Inkwell Threads. Everything I've purchased from my friends at Inkwell has been high quality and has quickly become a personal favorite of mine. Plus, you can get 20% off all Inkwell Threads purchases when you use code SSRPOD at checkout. Shop the whole collection of shirts, sweatshirts, tote bags, stickers, and more at www.inkwellthreads.com slash ssrpod, and be sure to use code ssrpod. Okay, listeners, it's officially New Reads November time. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school-era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read.
1: Hey, Elliot. Welcome to SSR. Thank you so much for having me. I've been so excited about this.
0: It is our first episode of New Reads November 2023, which is always a very big deal. I know we have a lot of big New Reads November fans in the audience, and I'm thrilled to have you here to kick off a very fun month with us. Let's do it. Yay. And we are talking about Friday I'm in Love by Cameron Garrett. Now, you and I were chatting a little bit before I hit record about the options that I sent you, and the fact that neither of us have ever read Cameron Garrett before, although now I might just be the Cameron Garrett number one fan. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was that drew you to this particular book when I sent you those choices?
1: Yeah, well, I think partially it's you know it's weird how we get to know authors. Like, so I think the name had been lodged in my head and my back brain for a while. I'd just been meaning to get around to it. You know, I teach at Hamlin, and we have a, a program in YA writing where we it's a graduate program, and I always try to like keep an keep a finger on like sort of what kinds of books are up and coming and what kinds of authors have a great buzz, especially, you know, if they're early or mid career and Cameron Garrett just keeps coming up. So also I just, I also want to have Cameron Garrett's cover designer for every book that I ever have. Like the cover of Friday i in Love is just beautiful and so joyous good. and colorful <laughs> and just makes you want to like sit down and it just tells you what experience you're going to have, which I feel like the book delivered. It just, it just jumped out to me.
0: Yeah, I read a couple of blog reviews that were sort of joking about how, like, we know we're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but it was hard not to do that with Friday I'm in Love. And the good news is that what's inside Friday I'm in Love delivers exactly what's promised on the cover. So in this case, judging a book by its cover was the right thing to do.
1: Yeah, I'm so impressed by those those professionals whose full-time job it is, is to take a full manuscript, distill it, figure out what it's really about and how to communicate that in a visual image instead of not using any text. and. When they do it right they do it really right um which is why as an author i'm always you know when i have cover approval i kind of like take a step back i'm like you're the you're the expert you went to scat or you know or and you know you know how to do visual communication so you just run with it i just i think they knocked it out of the park with this one
0: Yeah, I have some friends and family who have asked me, like, when your book comes out, what do you want the cover to be? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I am not the one for that job. (laughs) Somebody much more qualified than I am will, I'm sure, come up with something great. So I'm also always very impressed when people are able to apply their visual eye to a 300, 400-page book. Cameron Garrett is everywhere. I do think it's worth noting that when I put out the call for nominations for New Reads November this year... Cameron Garrett was the only author for which I had like multiple titles come in. So when I was sending options out to guests, there were several Cameron Garrett titles on there. So yeah, Cameron Garrett is everywhere. And I also discovered while I was researching her, she signed with her agent when she was 16.
1: Wow, that's amazing.
0: Isn't that amazing? She wrote the first draft of Friday I'm in Love when she was 18.
1: Oh, that explains so much. I know know. we're going to get deep in, but the voice, I mean, it just so captures what it means to be a teenager and she's just right on it. And that makes so much sense.
0: Yeah. I found an interview with her where she was talking about how she has so much appreciation for a lot of YA and out in the world, of course, but how she does feel like she has this special, special sauce because she's so close to the YA experience and she just feels like there's, no disconnect whatsoever between what she is writing for teens and the way that they're processing it. So yeah, I thought that that was really interesting. I wish I'd known that before I read it, but even in hindsight, it makes
1: total sense, like you said. Well, it's interesting. It might have actually changed the way that we would have read it, you know, knowing that part of her biography. And I think we got to the same conclusion and it just, it just like clicks the moment you say that she's so young. I say as a 44 year old YA writer who always, like voice is the last thing to come to me. I'm very much like a a plotter and a designer uh, of the book. And then I have to sort of really use every last muscle to try to get the voice to come alive. And I, I can sense here, it's probably a very opposite dynamic, right? Like this voice is so vital and real. I can only imagine that was the origin for the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we just had to figure out what Mahalia was going to do.
0: I'm so glad you talked about your experience because that was going to be my next question. And I'm wondering if you have any insight to share on like how you do ultimately tap into that voice as a 44-year-old writing for the YA audience.
1: Yeah, I, th- I find actually, I think we're, we're basically in two camps. I think there are some YA writers who a character appears in their mind and they just want to follow this person anywhere. It's someone that they they want to get to know better and that they would follow down any path and then there's another kind which is like me where I'm sort of I come up with a premise and maybe like a really important plot point and then I plot out from there with with in my outlining of a book I always just call the main character ego
0: Hmm. um,
1: which is what actually some video game designers from the 90s did that with their character before they named it and I just borrowed that convention cool they don't have any like they don't have a gender they don't have an age they don't have anything they're just the person decoy going through this plot. And then once the plot is done, I figure out who would be most affected by this story. Like who would have the most emotional reactions, who would have the greatest impact on. And I start designing the character from there. So it's, I'm sort of like Dr. Frankenstein, like putting this character monster together from all these different parts of what the story would need. So if it's going to, you know, if it's something that is going to be very humbling, I might think about what's a character who really would have a long way to go in being so you know with like the darkness outside as i started with this kind of hot guy fancy boy you know going through this long journey where you had to find intimacy and vulnerability i just want a character to have the longest arc i can so i try to figure out who's going to be most affected whereas this one i I bet we should get cameron garrett on the line but I I I (laughs) i bet we started with mahalia and then sort of figured out what is she going to do and what's going to be exciting for her to to figure out and and discover i would have followed this character anywhere And what I love about those two ways of writing, the voice versus the plot, is that neither one is better. It's just which one are you going to have to edit towards is probably whichever one you didn't start with, right? So I have to edit towards voice, and she might have had to edit towards plot. Although maybe maybe she does both simultaneously, and she's just better than all of us, <laughs> in, in which case I bow down.
0: You're blowing my mind right now, though, because I'm absolutely more of the voice writer. And I've, I've never heard anybody talk about their approach to writing to plot the way that you just did. And in some of my the workshops that I teach, I always try to like explain how to write starting with plot. And it's hard to do that when that's not the way that you write. So I'm going to have to share your insight with some of my students. And I am most certainly editing for plot right now. So... <laughs> I absolutely hear what you're saying, but I I wouldn't be surprised if Cameron Garrett somehow manages to do it all at once because she's so talented. Let's talk a little bit about Mahalia and the way we find her at the beginning of Friday, I Am In Love. What were your first impressions of this character when you met her?
1: You know, she's someone who is swinging wild. Like, I feel like she is like taking her bat and knocking at the ball as far as like what she wants and what, what she hopes for her life. And I love a character who is very invested, even if initially, I think she's kind of invested in the wrong things. We get a sense of like passion and goals and, you know, just this setting of Naomi's sort of blowout party, which she's trying to be a good best friend and trying to be loving and supportive and just kind of impressed and full of the wow factor, but also is, knows that she can never have a party like this, right, and that all people are equal supposedly, but then who you are and where you come from starts to matter. and. And, you know, she's, she knows that the funding for her own Sweet Sixteen is not going to come through. And so I found that really poignant, and I love that she is rattled by it, but not desolated by it. You could see what is what is frustrating her and what, what sand is in the oyster, but it's not like... We don't think, you know, based on the first few chapters, that we're going to go through a totally desolating experience. And sometimes we want those, and sometimes we don't. And I think this book like, kind of set the stakes in a very pleasing way and very clear way early, early on.
0: That's such an interesting crossroads, I think, for a teenager to what you just described, which is like that realization that the things that we want and the things that we, when we were younger, assumed would be attainable for us just by virtue of us wanting them and being human are actually not practical. And Mihaly is sort of a unique case because we find out pretty quickly that her financial circumstances are quite limiting. And she's been aware of that for a long time. I think one of the really important things that the author has done in this book is offer a realistic, straightforward picture of what it's like to deal with financial insecurity and the pressures that that can put on a teenager, especially when unexpected circumstances come up and even more help is required from that teenager. So while... Mahalia like is I think a little bit more primed to absorb that reality that like she's not going to be able to have this big sweet 16 it still hurts and it hurts because she's seeing in front of her what her friend can have and she knows she can't have it and I I loved Mahalia's self-awareness I pulled out this one quote in the very beginning where she's reflecting on the fact that her mom promised her when she was six years old that she would have a big sweet 16 like that was something that she always sort of dreamed of And she says, things were different when I was six. We had way less money. It's taken her a long time to get us to where we are. But sometimes I want more. And I always feel like a total asshole about it. And she knows that she's not perfect. Like, she knows that she can be an asshole. And, like, all teenagers can be assholes. And I just appreciate the fact that she's like, I know that this is something that I probably shouldn't want. But I still do. And that doesn't feel great.
1: Yeah, I... I love exactly I love exactly how she she can fess up to what she knows are undesirable qualities also in this very like plugged in way that she knows what Instagram and Twitter will kind of think about it right like what what archetype she's falling into and what it what it means for the ways that people perceive her like one of my favorite quotes was I sound like a weird middle-aged guy going after a younger girl in a rom-com written by a man. Yes. Um, So good. (laughs) Yeah. And like, you could have stopped, you could imagine a less capable author just stopping with, I sound like a weird middle-aged guy going after a younger girl. Mm -hmm. but then she adds in a rom-com. So it's like adjusting the tone of what it is. So she knows that this is not real life skeevy guy. This is like the way skeevy guys are written, written by a man. Right. So then it's also like the male expectation of what, these like skeevy guys that actually we were supposed to love. So like oh, like it's like four different layers, right? It's almost like, like Henry James or something to get to the get to the kernel of how she perceives herself. And she's not doing this like sort of easy, oh I'm the worst, you know? It's much more like I love myself and I know that I am complicated and that, you know, people that love me are gonna have to deal with it. And which makes us love her, right?
0: I feel like Mahalia is at her best as a character when she is feeling awkward, which is such a skill as an author. Like, I think it's it's easy when writing an awkward character to lay it on a little too thick and to make it seem too klutzy and like too uncomfortable and to make the reader cringe too hard to enjoy the book. But I thought that Cameron Garrett struck such a great balance and it, it had to do, I would like to think, with Mahalia's self-awareness. Again, like I keep coming back to that with her. She's so aware of the way that she's making other people feel, especially Siobhan, the love interest in the book. And she's always like aware of like where she is in relation to Siobhan and like, how am I making her feel? And so the line that you mentioned about like the rom-com written by a man, that made me think of that because she's, she's very concerned with whether what she's doing is right and whether what she's doing will be perceived as creepy or cool or like all of these things. So I just thought that was really well done and it took the edge off of what otherwise could have felt super cringy.
1: When it helps too that we're talking about kind of queer characters and queer accepting characters. Yeah. So she's mentioning like inheriting this heteronormative archetype, right? Of the skeevy middle-aged guy. But it's there's so many other elements that disrupt that. Because this is two two young women who are desiring each other. And so it kind of like takes us out of that kind of kind of like awfulness of of what men sometimes often are like when they're pursuing women and we get sort of a, a new playground to like explore it with these two characters and I think it really helps but she's still obviously churning through and processing everything that she res- has received about the way that romance is uh, is supposed to work and you can see it getting in her way too right like there's so many moments where she could be leaping forward and she's holding herself back because of what she thinks she should do um there's a lot of that kind of like is versus ought feeling with mm-hmm. her like like who I ought to be, what I ought to be doing. I could see like, you know, if I were her gay uncle, <laughs> I could see like, sometimes you have to turn off the super ego, right? And just and just be and not always think about like what you ought to be or what you ought to be doing. I think that is very much part of the journey of this book too.
0: Yeah, one thing that I, I didn't quite understand and if I had like any criticism or question about this book, I think this would probably be it. I didn't feel like I knew if Mahalia had been in other relationships before, except with like Bible Camp Isabel, I think is sort of like that she's the butt of the joke, like the first girl that Mahalia ever kissed. And I I wish that I had known better if she had dated casually anybody else before Siobhan, because I was so enjoying those moments of awkwardness and those moments where she's like trying to figure out how her behavior should or should not fit in with these heteronormative norms that you were just describing. And it would have been helpful at least for me to like understand if she was totally new to dating. But yeah, I mean, if that was my only critique, like Cameron Garrett, you don't need any thoughts from me.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think often like we're tempted to start characters at zero. So they are yeah. exploring a brand new world with, uh, with the reader so that they'll observe just what the reader needs to observe. And we're all just getting into it together and just like starting in the shallow end and getting deep. But real life, if, like, if you drop into someone's mind, novel starts there's they're already like working through their own history and their their regrets or their what they're happy happened in their own history and i do think we can disregard backstory sometimes i think fantasy writers are very good about setting up like what's already happened in this world and how it's affecting characters but often in contemporary books i think we we treat characters as if they're starting blank and uh, i think it would definitely be rattling around in her mind either the outcomes of these past relationships would be affecting her a lot or if you know she had never made it past a certain stage like reaching that stage would maybe have more more impact I, I love you know they say you can never go wrong with having a main character have a secret at the beginning of a book and I don't think that's necessarily so needed the secret here but this this feeling of oh no it's repeating right but we, teenagers go through all the time of like well I have the last one up and now I'm gonna do it again you know classic <laughs> um, me <laughs> yeah exactly and I think there's so many things that are Entirely, like we are living inside a real human when we're reading Mahalia. That that's just another element that, if it were there even more, I think we would also have it have it there.
0: Yeah, those are great points. So she's at Naomi's Sweet Sixteen at the beginning of the book. She has this very brief meeting with a girl she's never seen before in the bathroom. We find out that this is Siobhan, the love interest, and in sort of debriefing Naomi's party with her. And Naomi, side note, I don't think we mentioned this is Mahalia's longtime best friend who is quite a bit more affluent than Mahalia but they share some things in common in addition to like just being friends and a shared history and all of those things they both are black in a school that seems fairly white and so while they have these differences in class they tend to like kind of wink at each other at some similar moments when weird comments are made about race and to kill a mockingbird in class and school and i really appreciated the fact that cameron garrett included moments like that in the book but in unpacking Naomi's Sweet 16, they get this idea that Mahalia, even if she can't have the big Sweet 16 that Naomi had, she'd maybe have something and maybe it should be what she's going to call a coming out party. And I read different takes on this when I was researching and just kind of like getting a read on what people had thought about Friday I'm in Love. And I was wondering about this as I was reading because what I've absorbed in previous years of doing New Reads November is this movement away from coming out narratives and I've heard about this in like the adult space as well but I think it's especially relevant in YA books and some of the reviewers that I came across with Friday I'm in Love felt that resistance where they were like I thought that we were kind of past this whole coming out narrative like we just want to see teens being teens being queer not having to worry about coming out Whereas others felt like this book was kind of a workaround to that because although it technically does have this coming out element, Mahalia is really just living her life. Like she's very confident in being queer. She isn't hesitating about whether or not she's interested in Siobhan. She just wants to be able to fully declare herself and especially be honest with her mom about her sexuality. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that because I do think that this conversation about like where we are in YA Lit with the coming out narrative. Is an important one. And as somebody who is in this space and writing in this world, I would just be curious what you have to say.
1: Yeah. I honestly, I loved it. I thought it was a wink to the situation that YA is in around coming out. Because, you know, debutante balls, sweet 16s, quinceaneras, those are all coming out ceremonies that feasibly straight kids or bi kids or, or gay kids all do as a way of like announcing that I'm coming out as an adult in the world, like as someone who is a sexual being who is available to others. Like debutante balls kind of take it in an icky direction, in my opinion. Yes. <laughs>
0: I'm ready. <laughs>
1: exactly. Come at me, boys. I'm um, like, gross. But I think it's, you know, the fact that like coming out is doubled here, both as coming out about her sexuality, but also like coming out as a 16-year-old human who is who's now an adult in a lot of people's eyes. I think it was so clever. Uh, and I really loved that, the way that she did it. And I think we can be really dogmatic in YA about the things that we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. And I think, you know, when, as long as you're thinking about it deeply, um, that breaking a lot of that dogma is great. And I think we all have to come out repeatedly. It's not like it even just, you do it once. Like you come out to your best friend and see how it goes, and then you test the waters with, with a larger group of friends, and then you have your parents. And it's something that's on actual teens' minds a ton um, when they're LGBTQIA+. So to say that that trend is over, like what's, we're moving on to other books is maybe doing a disservice to the actual readers. And instead it's this echo chamber that we YA authors can get into about like, what's cool, like what are we supposed to be doing? Which is doing a disservice to the actual people these books are for. So I, I loved it. And I thought it is time to have like a self-referential take. And I think she was so knowing. I don't think it was like a cynical choice on her part, but I think the book is the right book for now about how to come out and what it means.
0: I mean, it would be ideal if we could live in a world where people didn't feel that they had to come out again and again. But to your point, I think that's exactly what this book is trying to say. It's just dressed with a little extra party and music because Mahalia again and again references the fact that, like, the default in our world is straight. Like, straight people don't have to come out as straight, and that is messed up. Like, why should she have to? That's a conversation my husband and I have all the time. Like, Like, I hope that our kids don't feel that they have to come out, you know, in 18 years, whatever it is. But I think, like, to pretend that that's how it is for every kid now, like you said, is a disservice. Because there are kids living all over this country and all over the world who maybe don't feel that they are in a position to not come out. And they maybe need a little extra boost of confidence that Mahalia can provide in the form of this book so that they can do it in a way that feels good to them.
1: Yeah. I thought a bit about the... um... HBO show, which was unfortunately a very short-lived Generation, mm. um, where it's part it was the West Coast feeling, but also like a cast that was largely queer and at the very least, certainly like queer knowledgeable and queer accepting. What it what it does to like live in this book, right, where coming out is sort of like not, not the way it might be in the actual readers high school, where it is a huge event here. It's more of a minor event that you could disregard or you could actually say, screw it and have a big party for it. And I think that's one of the things for young queer readers is reading a book where it just has a different stance towards coming out than that, what they knew, you know, looking way back. So books like David Levithan's boy meets boy back in 2004 and what that book did by saying, no, we're, we're, we're going to skip all the trauma narratives. You know, that David Levithan talks a lot about how like he grew up reading, like there had to be a car accident or someone died at the end. Like if, if they're gay characters, and, like we're going to skip all that and just actually experience the, the fantasy of a entirely queer accepting world you take that model and then you also take the the true reality that kids are growing up in a world that that they feel hates them that it has a huge mental impact on their their own happiness like that is also true and so there's room for both of those ends of the poles and books in the middle like this one where it is an issue but it's not like it is something that is going to like make or break mahalia instead it's just like oh i have to like (laughs) Look at this extra thing I have to do that other people don't have to do. Like, how can I make it fun? How can I make it so that I'm going to enjoy it as it happens? And I just love that kind of middle ground that we have painted out here.
0: We'll jump back into the party planning and the fun of it all. But while we're on the subject, I did want to jump ahead a little bit to touch on the conversation that Mahalia does ultimately have to have with her mom, which is, I would say, the closest thing to that traumatic coming out moment that David Levithan was trying to avoid in Boy Meets Boy. Because toward the end of the book, Mahalia is sort of backed into coming out to her mom when she's caught in a lie. Her mom thought that she was at work and instead finds out that she was hanging out with Siobhan, her girlfriend. And Mahalia is just like, I'm tired of lying. Like she just sort of comes out with it. And her mom, who we know from the beginning, is very involved in church and pretty conservative in a lot of ways, does not react in a way that I'm sure Mahalia would have liked. I pulled out a couple of the quotes that she said. She says, I think that you're too young for all of this. Why would you label yourself as gay when you aren't even mature enough? Everyone would have something to say. Do you understand? Everyone at church would talk about it. And putting myself in in this character's shoes, like that would be so heartbreaking to hear from your mom, especially because as we mentioned, like she already is so confident in who she is. Like she's not tormented about, how she wants to live her life, who she wants to love, how she wants to express who she is. But it's just this one person who she's been afraid to talk to about this, who is unfortunately reacting exactly the way that she thought she might. What did you think about that scene?
1: Yeah, I I thought it was really well laid out um, because I think, you know, who's gonna give you a bigger gut smack, even for the most minor thing, than your parent? You were once a small child with this person and that any one criticism there's this outsized impact uh, and you could sense that here and I think one of the things that Cameron Garrett did so well was made although we the reader are on Mahalia's side in this like made the mother's arguments reasonable or at least human you know that we, we got where she was coming from what she saw as the way the social world worked because she doesn't have access to sort of the actual real teen life that Mahalia is living with with Siobhan and Naomi and I think it was just from from the mother's point of view, it was actually like kind of reasonable things, even though, even though they were very hurtful on Mahalia's years, you know, this, it would just be easier if you weren't, you know? <laughs> like, I, I don't want you to suffer. You're my kid. And, you know, maybe you're going to have to do all this work and it's actually not going to be true. And you'll you'll wind up realizing it was just a phase, which all from living within, you know, this sort of tower of Mahalia's mother, like made sense from her worldview. Um, but then we could see the kind of, the total the desolating impact it had on Mahalia when she heard it.
0: And I also really appreciated the way that Mahalia was able to communicate to her mom in return because her mom is like laying out all of these things that are meant to prove that Mahalia like isn't old enough to make this quote decision, which like it's not a decision, but Mahalia is like, right, right, right. Except that I'm paying bills. I'm working. I'm an adult in every other way. So she's calling out that double standard, which I appreciate. And we also have to remember Mahalia's mom had Mahalia when she was 17. So this is a very young mom and they really have grown up together. And so I liked that in that moment, we saw them almost like teaching each other and Mahalia having to remind her like, "Mm, I think you need to take a step back here and think about what the circumstances of my life actually look like before you tell me that I'm not grown up enough to express myself the way that I am.
1: Yeah. And sexuality is one of these things that it comes from within. And and when you realize that you're LGBTQIA+, like nothing shows on the outside that you've had this realization. So you think about like for a parent, you've raised this person and especially when they're close in age, like you feel like you really know them inside and out. So her mother feels like Mahalia is like as close to being herself as she could imagine. And all of a sudden there's there's a secret, there's something you didn't know. Uh, And like, I think that's the moment that happens can be really shocking and, and explains a lot of the, negative reactions that parents can have because they feel like, no, we know everything. I know everything about you. And I know this, we've never, never talked about this. Like this can't be true. I think it's this kind of disbelief that, that she has. I, I think that tension between you see me as an adult, you see me as a child is something that is threaded through. There's also this great part where she talks about how adults want us to be children and adults at the same time. And she goes on to say, uh, they want us to be good at school and do a shit ton of stuff outside of it, just so we can go to college, even if we don't want to and join the world of the rest of them who only complain about their jobs and debt and taxes all day. <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of imagine like the sort of the Looney Tunes version, like this factory, just like procession of people like being constructed and like ending up in miserable lives and then wanting their, their kids to do the very same thing. And Mahalia sees the system and wants to form her own path during it. And I think this is actually like fairly early on in the book. It's maybe the halfway point where that quote is. So she already has this sense of being very capable and, and that self-awareness is, is giving her a buffer and a shield against uh, what she's going through. But I I often talk with my, my husband, like I have, I have a brother. And so whenever my parents do weird shit, I talk to my brother about it. <laughs> like, mom just said this, like, he's like, I know, that's so mom. <laughs> and then my husband, like he he was an only child. So he never knew, like, is it just me? Or is it my parents that are being crazy, right? Like he had no feedback from another kid. And it made him sort of like, have to sort of figure out what was going on or make decisions that he never felt totally secure about whereas i'm like i can feel like my brother agrees with me and i know what's going on and i think for young readers this moment of mahalia and her mother like they might see their own parents after they came out in the reactions of mahalia's mom and by inhabiting mahalia during it like being in her point of view and realizing the injustice of it they'll see the injustice of hatred that they've been given by loved family Too, or or at least negative reactions, or things that felt like they weren't seen. So I think it's kind of like, you know, having this sibling to give you feedback. Like Mahalia is that sibling saying, like, here's here's a shitty thing that my my mom did. What does your mom do when you when you came out to her? It's a real kindness and and a reason why there is such this insatiable need for books about gender expression and sexuality within YA, because getting that feedback and that that center perspective is really really important for young people.
0: Absolutely. And I think that in my angstiest teenage moments, even as somebody who is not LGBTQIA plus, I remember struggling with that, what felt like hypocrisy, like this feeling of you want me to be an adult sometimes, but then you want me to be a kid other times. And I hated that feeling. And I think the fact that I was able to relate to that is such a reminder of how important it is that all teens be reading books like this. Like I think it's taken far too long for a book like Friday I'm in Love to just be handed to every kid even if they don't need like a coming out story, you know, quote need a coming out story because there are obviously parts of this experience that anybody can relate to. Like the teen experience is difficult and fun and exciting and terrifying for everybody in different ways. And so I really related to that feeling of hypocrisy in A sort of different way but it resonated all the same
1: yeah and coming out isn't just for queer people there's so many times you have to come out as so many different things over the course of a life even if you are cisgender and straight like a disability that's hidden that you have to like explain to people the feeling like oh i don't want to participate in hookup culture when you're at college like that's sort of you have to come out and say it because people assume that you are and like just a long list of hundreds of things that we have to find ways to give people news about us you know like find language for it and i think these kind of stories are are not just for any one group, it's things that we all have to struggle with. Um, so it's useful emotional information.
0: Absolutely. Let's chat about the object of Mahalia's love and obsession really, and her affection, and all of those delicious
1: things. Her Edward Cullen-ness, yeah. <laughs> her, yes,
0: her Edward Cullen-ness. We actually just did an episode about New Moon, so I have Edward Cullen very much on my brain. Siobhan. Siobhan is a new girl. We always love a new character coming into a high school scene that's always going to set up something juicy. Mahalia meets her in the bathroom at Naomi's party and then she sees her again in school and she's dating this kid named Danny. Shout out to Danny not because he's a good guy because I hate him but because he's such a well-written character and I feel like everybody had at least one Danny in their high school.
1: And he's like the model for a great antagonist because yeah. if you just hit the gas pedal entirely and just make someone an irredeemable asshole, the readers kind of wall it off. Like they're like, okay, he's just, he's a cartoonish villain or something, but he's got this like mix. Like he's sort of unknowable. He's kind of inscrutable. Like he gives surprising reactions to things. He's a really hard character to put your finger on. And so I think we're always sort of sensitive to him because we don't quite know what's going to come out next from him or exactly why Siobhan is, is hanging around him and Siobhan's own choices um, are really a big part of it too.
0: Yeah, he's, he's sort of a class clown a little bit, but not so much in a goofy way, more in just like his opinions. Like it seems like all of his classmates are used to him just airing his obnoxious, ignorant thoughts without much care for how it might be received by other people. He just has no filter and His classmates, whether they agree or don't agree with his opinions, seem to just kind of like laugh that off, like, oh, Danny, you know him, like he always just says what he thinks. And Mahalia is paired with Danny and Siobhan for this history project where they decide that they're going to study the Electoral College. And Danny, of course, takes this opportunity to be like, this isn't political, like stop making everything political. And you just know, you know, exactly what Danny's parents are like. You know, I was going to say, like, I can picture Danny's dad, but I don't want to put it all on his dad. Maybe his mom, too. I can just picture their dinner table. Like, <laughs> oh, this is it's, yeah, it's his dad. I'm glad it's not just me. You can picture what they talk about at dinner. And, like, Danny's coming in hot at school. And he's, like, he, you know, like, hates cancel culture. And I'm trying to think other things about Danny that will give listeners an idea of
1: the kind of dude he is. He has a thought until so he gets to express it, right? Like, yeah. like such a portrait of certain very common kind of maleness. Like, he's just like, you know, I'm sure he's a man spreader. It doesn't come up in the book, but I'm uh. sure he like takes up more space than he should. And he's just like, I get to have a viewpoint. And because he says it so confidently and so emphatically, the whole class laps it up, right? Which is what, why you get so many like miniature assholes coming out of high schools. <laughs> Whereas like, this is a book about desire between females. And so he's a great model for kind of like, yeah, that icky dank pond of high school maleness (laughs) that's in the background like who wouldn't choose Siobhan over Danny right
0: and we learn later on that, that Siobhan has attached herself to Danny because they met over the summer and she was feeling lonely and like a fish out of water having moved from Ireland and he because he's so confident and like knows everybody in town he was a very comfortable person for her to spend time with and that makes total sense to me Somebody who isn't confident in their own skin and is sort of figuring out the social scene in a new place would absolutely be drawn to a kid who can help her get connected and make life a little bit less scary in a new place. So that totally tracked for me. And I also felt that it was pretty obvious that Siobhan is realizing now that they're in school that Danny is just really embarrassing. Like it's definitely like the summer romance, like knowing somebody outside of a school environment versus knowing somebody in a school environment. Because in addition to being, we find out later queer, Siobhan is also mixed race. And so Danny has a lot of just like horrible opinions about race. He just says a lot of like ignorant things in school about whiteness. Like there's this whole conversation about To Kill a Mockingbird. That I, as a kid who I hate to admit, like participated in conversations like that as a white kid growing up in white suburbia, you know, Siobhan is embarrassed by him as somebody who has a black parent and is trying to figure out her own racial identity. And you can just like feel that inside of her of like, this guy seemed really cool over the summer. And now I can't believe that I have attached myself to him.
1: I thought that was one thing. The the book's treatment of race was like gave me a lot of hope. Um, yeah. Because it was not like I, you know, growing up as a teenager in the 90s, like we were colorblind was like the way that we we're supposed to be. right? Like we don't see race like no one. No one has. You know, we don't talk about it. We don't think about it. We just see everyone as human. And that was what seemed like the model of goodness and like actual like racial justice was just ignoring it. <laughs> yeah. Now, obviously, we're like much further beyond that. And I think this model of it comes up a lot. Like someone if someone is white, it's acknowledged. If someone is black, it's acknowledged. If someone's biracial, it's acknowledged without ever having to be the foregrounded subject of the book. It's just something that the character is aware of and that the book is aware of and that it's, you know, casual racism happens and it's not like the plot screeches to a halt and we have a big chapter where we investigate it. It's just like acknowledged and, and moved on, but pointed out and observed and so that it becomes part of the fabric of the book, which I think is such a a wonderfully like kind of light and realistic hand to take around depictions of racism in teen life. Kind of like how... When we were talking about with sexuality earlier that, you know, it can be part of the fabric without being the subject of the book either. And I think, you know, like there's one observation she makes. It's just so funny, right? She says she dances like a white woman in a commercial for some questionable medication.
0: <laughs> I, like, I can picture it. <laughs> I can
1: see the dance. And now we know like, has seen that and like, oh, that's a white woman dancing in a, in a pharmaceutical. App. It's just like this, like, and it's just dropped in and the, and the book moves on, but it's an observation around race, which we're all making uh, all the time but without sort of a sense of like anxiety or or like this heavy handedness to it. Danny's presentation too, is like, yeah, here's a racist guy. And this is like, we all encounter them a lot. We all are racist in some degree. Right. So it's a way of like seeing ourselves or seeing other people through his character too.
0: Yeah. Cameron Garrett actually mentioned in one of the interviews that I found that this to kill a mockingbird scene was inspired by something that actually happened to her when she was in high school. And she felt like it was really important to acknowledge moments like that that authors that YA authors are often quick to like cut out of a book because they seem small or silly but she was like no I understand that for a teenager a moment like that can feel definitive and crucial and I was happy that those moments made it in the book as well and I I would imagine that the way that the kids in this book talk about race to some extent, talk about sexuality as well is very similar to the way that real Gen Z kids talk about race and sexuality, and that comes back to what we were saying at the beginning, which is that Cameron Garrett is very close to all of this, so that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it was kind of like it was a moment where I, I often think, as I'm reading a book, it just as a writer, I sort of think like, what's what what is the author doing and what are they pulling off here, and the way the facility it has with the kind of presentations of sexuality and race, and just the awareness of. The way that, you know, 21-year-olds or 18-year-olds talk about it now, made me realize, like, this is something, like, I am I am 44. Like, I, I couldn't pull this off, right? <laughs> I couldn't. Um, even if I tried, it would be, like, really kind of cloying and it wouldn't work. Um, and I'm just grateful that we have this huge range of writers writing this huge range of books. Something I was like, I just took my hat off. I was like, Cameron Garrett, you keep doing this. This is great. <laughs>
0: so Siobhan and Helia kind of start to explore a relationship. They were thrown into this group working on this electoral college project, which ends up being a total disaster, largely because of Danny. But they start hanging out on their own. And Mahalia's understandably a little bit confused about what's going on because she's getting some mixed messages. And she really wants to hope that there's a chance that Siobhan could be into her, but she doesn't really know if Siobhan's interested in girls. So she's feeling that out. She's not sure if she's been friend zoned. And then there's a moment when she goes to Siobhan's house and Siobhan's mom, I think it was, maybe her dad, but I think it was her mom sort of mentions offhand that there was a girl back in Ireland named Erin. I did think it was hilarious that the two Irish teenagers were named Siobhan and Erin. Like
1: <laughs> Irish capital I, all caps. Yes, yeah. like
0: we're not messing around with these Irish names. She did have a crush on a girl named Erin. And Siobhan is sort of mortified that her mom dropped this information so easily. But of course, Mahalia is like thrilled because she's like, hmm, maybe there's a chance.
1: Yeah, I think actually the Irishness was... The place where I I kind of felt like it was a little bit too exotic for me mm. as a reader. I think there's always often in rom com convention, and maybe this is kind of a nod to it. There's this way in which the the British or Irish or Scottish person is just dropped into an American scene because it's it sounds really great and it's like something desirable about people that come from there and they have a sort of sense of humor. But it felt like it almost like was operating in a different book. The fact that this that Siobhan was from Ireland, it didn't really feel like it it impacted who she was in any significant way and it just like sort of was a like a little extra thing you could pour in to add desirability to her but at the same time it also i think maybe made her a little bit more inscrutable to Mahalia. Mm -hmm. that like how do irish people act and how do they deal with sexuality i don't know like maybe this it made her sort of like harder for her to read which is the central vehicle of this book right this romantic tension of not knowing what someone, actually is going on in someone's mind, and if they desire you, or if they even desire girls at home, which maybe the Irishness helps.
0: That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. And and then Mahalia is especially confused when Siobhan gets drunk and starts like complimenting her boobs and like saying a bunch of random stuff, and she's like, "Okay, what is going on?" So it takes a while for them to sort out their feelings for each other. But unsurprisingly, the two find themselves drawn to each other and they start dating I won't give away all the details about like how it comes together and how they start to form a relationship but I do think it's we're talking about the fallout between Naomi and Mahalia that follows this relationship between Siobhan and Mahalia because I think it's something that most teens can relate to just the The thing that happens in long-term platonic friendships when one or both friends gets into a romantic relationship that they just like can't stop thinking about. And I just thought that that was really well done here. Like friend breakups are so painful and I think they're too rarely, they're too rarely covered with the respect that they deserve. I think we are like sort of raised on this idea that when you have a romantic breakup, you can stop your life. But sometimes friend breakups are just as devastating and require a similar slowdown in life. And that's what happens here. Like Naomi and Mahalia basically stop talking for a time because Naomi is sick of hearing Mahalia talk about herself and talk about Siobhan and talk about her party and talk about how she can't afford the party. And she's like, I've had it. Like you never ask me any questions about myself. And I feel that about my adult friends sometimes too. So I was like, yes, Naomi, like thank you for calling her out. And here again, we have our main character as an imperfect person, which is so refreshing.
1: Yeah. And I, there's also this presumption that when a romantic relationship happens, that it it automatically moves to the front of the queue as far as where your attentions lie and who you're intimate with and who you care most about. And I think that's what can be so heartbreaking about a, a teenage friendship when the first important romance happens, when the best friend gets sidelined, that it's almost as if they were, they were just filling a role as someone waited to have a romantic connection to someone pushed out um, as a result of that. And I think that's something that teens go through so much, that first feeling of it. And in a way, it's, I think it's something we have to think about a little bit more, right? Like this sort of presumption of, I've heard it phrased like a motto normativity, the like, mm. that, that romantic attachment should be the first priority in everyone's lives, which is something that YA books often just duplicate and reinforce unquestioningly. But that maybe you could live a life in which your friendships are totally fulfilling and the most important thing and that romantic relationships, if they exist, are our second and third priority. It's kind of like we're we're hinting at it in the situation here in this book. I don't think it's directly addressed, but I don't know, this this assumption that, that romance is the be all and end all, which, you know, pop music tells us, you know, <laughs> like you're not complete until you find this person, right? And I think that does a real disservice to these best friendships, which can be totally fulfilling and wonderful.
0: Absolutely. What did you think about all of the music references? Too much, just the right amount? I know people can have strong feelings
1: about this. <laughs> so I don't I don't I'm not even on Spotify. <laughs> uh, Wait. So hold I don't on. go and track down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I listen to music.
0: I don't think I've met somebody in a while who's not on Spotify. That's cool though. Yeah,
1: I listen to albums. Like I listen to like I, I stream an album, but I don't go to playlists on Spotify. Okay. Yeah, so I'm not the type of person who like when I'm reading a book, like, gets the playlist that will go along with it. Although, I totally get why people would. Um, but I thought they were all introduced so lightly. And I think my favorite part was when Mahalia was trying to design a playlist to sort of woo Siobhan, and she and Naomi are going back and forth about the quality of the different songs. So and cute. It's just so eviscerating and so funny. I think there was one note uh, I think Shade is sort of her parents to grind to at parties and nothing else. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they Yeah, exactly they have these notes back and forth about like nope nope that's not gonna work what are you thinking no and in a book that's you know named after a really famous 80s pop song it was really welcome to me and um even like even I knew you don't put Sade in a, on a mix unless you're like really already deep in it <laughs> it's a step too far Mahalia step back
0: yeah I also love the playlists there were a couple like borderline kind of musical number moments that I wasn't sure how to feel about but then I found in the interviews with Cameron Garrett that she wanted to write a queer homage to teen rom-coms and one that she mentioned specifically was 10 Things I Hate About You and once I got that reference I was like okay I sort of understand a little bit more why there was this emphasis not only on Mahalia's love of music but on like people actually singing to each other in the middle of the school day. So that put it in context for me a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean, using music in any novel is so dicey because the rights yeah. are really expensive. So I have actually a couple of manuscripts where I had lyrics quoted, like just the way people do, like they talk about a lyric that means something to them. And like conversations with my editor, are like we, we actually can't do this, we can't afford it. Like a movie like 10 Things I Hate About You can afford to license music, but books in general can't. And so you wind up doing this dance where the title of a song can be mentioned, but you actually can't do the, the contents of a song. Uh, you can't write them down. So I think this, this book kind of managed the dance too. Like we sort of point to the song, but we don't actually sort of have characters quoting, quoting it to each other. You know, some people like live their lives with a soundtrack of their own making, you know? And I think uh, it, it felt really believable.
0: Yeah, I mean, they definitely bought the rights to Friday I Am In Love. But other than that, I think you're right. They probably got away with a lot. And I liked that Mahalia loved music and loved old school music and that that was something that connected her to her dad, which is a whole other complicated relationship that we don't have time to get to today. But that was something I related to. Like My dad and I share a lot of musical interests, and that's something that makes me feel very close to him. So I thought that was really sweet. So something that we like to do on New Reads November as we wrap up our conversations about each book is consider what this new YA title that we've read is telling us about the progress that YA has made as a genre and and how the book that we've chosen to read for an episode compares to books that we read when we were teenagers. And I think we've kind of hinted at this throughout our conversation, Elliot, but I'd love if you could kind of wrap things up by just sharing your thoughts. And I know you have a unique perspective as a YA author yourself, but what do you think Friday I'm in Love specifically is telling us about the change in the YA category and especially how far we've come since you and I were teenagers reading books?
1: I was a teenager when Bush v. Gore happened, which is the history project they're doing in this book. So I was like, they treat it as if it could have been like, you know, the Crusades, right? It was just like (laughs) ancient event, and I was like, oh, I voted in that election. Um, It was Bush v.
0: Gore. I participated in a mock election for that. If that makes you feel any better, I like we had these refrigerator box fake election booths at my school, and that was the first election that I remember really understanding. So I couldn't technically vote, but I was. I thought that i was voting i was involved
1: were there the hanging hanging chads and all the, yeah. <laughs> all the controversy and the, the supreme court got involved and...
0: yes at my school
1: <laughs> yeah that's awesome yeah i feel like you know it just kind of sum up what we what we pointed to so i won't since we already did talk about it a fair amount i won't like go at length but i do feel like it is this the evidence of progression you know i think it's been a while since i read a book that so clearly captured the zeitgeist in the current moment in ya like this one does And just the sheer fact of like we for a while, we just like when a book was light, we pretended that dark stuff wasn't there. And the way that this book threads together dark and light, kind of like like a feed does, you know, when you're scrolling, like so like, oh, sad. Oh, cool. And like that feeling that you get from this book felt very now. Uh, And I was just really, really impressed by it. And I think I can't believe I didn't come across that fact that the author is so young, um, which helps explain a lot of it.
0: I think that's all very well said. Well, I'm so glad that we were able to kick off New Reads November with this fantastic book. Thank you for choosing it so that we could get rolling on such a great note. Other than Friday, I'm in love, Elliot, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners?
1: So I'm actually reading a, a, a throwback book right now. I'm reading Pillars of the Earth, which was mm. a, a giant bestseller in like 89. It's set in the 12th century at a monastery. And my next project, I think, might be set in the 12th century at a monastery. Cool. Uh, and so I just wanted to read it. And it's, Gripping. I am like so absorbed by this book, Um, and it's one of those books you see in like used bookstores all the time. It's this giant tome of a novel, and I finally am reading it. But as far as like more recent books, I read and really enjoyed *Legends and Lattes* uh, a couple months ago, which this whole growth of like cozy literature is really interesting to me. So this is a cozy fantasy novel where the main character is this orc barbarian who has slain dragons and been in all sorts of dungeon dragonzy battles, but on one of her adventures, just discovers coffee. (laughs) like, like, she wants to go back to her fantasy town and like, open a coffee shop. And the book is really about (laughs) opening a coffee shop. Like, how are you going to get customers? How are you going to get the right coffee machine? How are you going to get pastry? And it's just so sweet. And I think, you know, especially as someone who teaches uh, fiction writing, like, the drum beat so often in workshop is raise the stakes. Mm -hmm. And I just love that this book, like every term is like lower the stakes. (laughs) And it's so charming. And I'm curious to follow where this cozy literature trend goes.
0: Yeah, I've actually, I think, Three or four people have recommended Legends and Lattes on the podcast, which is so interesting to me because it is such a specific kind of book. And I haven't read it yet. It's not something that I necessarily would have been drawn to, but maybe you're finally going to put me over the edge, especially at this time of year. It feels like the right kind of book to pick up.
1: Yeah, I think it's doing some really, really interesting things and proving that maybe what we assume all readers want isn't actually true post pandemic and in these times that we might have to readjust what readers are actually looking for. So I I, I learned a lot from that book.
0: Great. Well, speaking of what you're learning, what you're working on, I know your latest book is out. It's called The Charming Young Man. Congratulations on having it out on shelves. What can you tell us about
1: it? Yeah, Um, so Charming Young Man is a historical YA book. And 15 years ago, I went through a terrible breakup and I had sublet my apartment and I was living with my then boyfriend in Denver. And I was gonna spend the summer with him. And we broke up on like day two of that trip. So I actually went to the airport and <laughs> went to the United Airlines counter and said, I have $300, like, where can you send me? Because I had sublet my apartment, I couldn't go home. And so the the ticket agent said, how about Seattle? And I was like, oh, my best friend lives there. So I like, called her from the plane and uh, landed in Seattle and spent the summer with her. And while I was heartbroken, I just wandered downtown Seattle and I went into the art museum and I discovered this portrait of um, a young man uh, named Leon de la Fosse. And he's a real life Person. The portrait was painted by John Singer Sargent, and I listened to the audio guide version of his life. And basically, he had grown up in poverty in France, was a huge prodigy at the piano, showed this enormous aptitude, and then entered the Paris Conservatory and was the youngest ever to win the first prize in piano at the age of 13. And he was like toasted as like the next great composer, like he was going to be the next Mozart. He started to play in salon society, so this is in the 1890s in Paris. you had to play in like the fancy homes and like people would you know, like who, who you knew and networking was very important. So while he's playing these salons as a teenager, as a 16 year old, he meets Marcel Proust, who at that time was a 19 year old gossip columnist. And so Proust and Leon, the young pianist became really good friends. And I think probably boyfriends of a sort. And they, they gained their way into high society parties to get higher and higher because Proust was also trying to make it into the upper class. And, and, and Leon ended up meeting this famous count um, who's a total dandy. He had um, one of his own tears encased in a, in a gold ring and he would wear it. And he had like a imported tortoise from Indonesia that a jeweler had encrusted with rubies that would wander his house during his parties. Amazing. And he became Leon's patron and Leon moved in with him as a teenager. And something happened. They had some sort of falling out and the count poisoned all the connections he had made for this young pianist. And he disappeared from history at the age of 17. Wow. So. No one knows what happened to him or what went down. and charming young man is my using the historical record where I can, but and then making a novelization of his life and, and what I think happened in this like grand Bellapoque society with these kind of like gay love triangle happening between these these three young men.:
0: Oh, that sounds so juicy. I love stumbling upon those stories that like nobody nobody knows, and why not? That's such a fascinating even just like meeting, crossing of the paths of these different people. So I'm so glad that you imagined your own version of what might have happened to him. And listeners, I will make sure that you know where to find charming young man. Elliot, thank you for sharing it with us.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm looking forward. We're going on a little tour for it. So hopefully I'll see some of your listeners in a couple of stops. And otherwise, uh, yeah, we can see how it goes.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'll make sure that they know how to find you on social media as well so they can see where you will be going. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about Friday, I'm in Love. I had so much fun.
1: Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for the invite. This was a really fun experience and uh, I'm gonna be a frequent listener from here on out. Oh, thanks.
0: SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media/podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast.